Amen. Thank you, Blake. What was I, I missed what you said. I'm taking it. <laughs> Please do. Take your garbage out of here. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, listen, before we actually jump into this, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware of what happened up uh, in Kentucky and regions around there uh, yesterday. I just thought it'd be good for us to pray for them. We certainly know what it's like uh, to go through something like that, not with such a stunning loss of life. Uh, so let's just take a moment here to pray for the people, uh, especially uh, in Kentucky. Father, we just pray for all of those who are affected by these storms. And we certainly know what it's like, Lord, to be at the mercy of the winds when they come. And uh, we just pray for everybody that's involved in this. Father, for those who've lost loved ones, we pray that your comfort is there and that your presence is there to help guide them through their grief. But we pray for all of those who've survived and are, are trying to rebuild and put things back together. We just ask you, Lord, to provide the proper help that's necessary. Give them the stamina and the strength. Just let your grace be in the midst of all of this. Lord, we saw how people all came together after the storm we faced. We know that that will happen there, but we just pray that your presence is in the midst of it. Uh, Move our hearts, Lord. Help us to be aware and obedient if we see or recognize ways or areas in which we can be of help. But Lord, we just ask you to watch over the people there and uh, comfort and help them and sustain them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, last week, we, uh, we, I think at the end of the service, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to remember when we did it, but we prayed for Chris Rittman, who, uh, uh, you know, his uh, wife, Kim Rittman, you know her. Uh, uh, he was uh, going through a very serious surgery, came through it really well. Everything's going well. He's recovering at home, doing great. And uh, so we're grateful to the Lord for what he did on that. So uh, still has a, you know, convalescence in front of him. So we'll just continue to keep him in prayer. But uh, so we're going to get into our message this morning. Um, the neighborhood that I live in, uh, has a uh, Facebook group. Any of you guys have a Facebook Facebook group for your neighborhood? Yeah, we got one. Actually, Amanda started uh, from our church here. Started our our Facebook group, and it's it's honestly really cool. It comes in really handy. Like if there's road work going on or things that are happening, you can find out what's going on there. If garage sales are happening, or get recommendations for plumbers or things like that. But as with everything online, it also becomes a place for people to vent or complain. And the monitors do a great job of trying to keep that, you know, police that from being uh, something that gets out of hand. But one time, and I'm pretty sure it was around the 4th of July, uh, a a person got on the Facebook group and started complaining about their neighbor who was setting off fireworks at about 11 o'clock at night, well past when everybody else had been setting off their fireworks. And the usual complaints were there, you know, I got to get up early and my kids and the dogs are freaking out and blah, blah, blah. And it was pretty terse. I mean, it was a really terse uh, uh, post about that. And almost immediately, there was a response from the neighbor who was shooting the fireworks apologizing and went on to explain that he had bought those fireworks months before for his kids to be able to, you know, set off with him. And he, he had had to, because of the worker shortages, he had to work a double that day. And he wasn't able to get off in a timely manner to be able to get with his kids and shoot them off when everybody else was. And so he hoped that they would understand. And of course, the original poster immediately backed off and apologized as well, just saying, I didn't realize, because it was clear at that point that this wasn't just a bunch of, you know, uh, aimless racket going on or whatever. This was an important celebration that was lovingly keeping a promise to children. 
And that explanation helped to offset the discomfort with the whole thing. The motives became clear in that. And that's similar to what's going to be happening in our text this morning if we, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible with you and if you'd like to follow along, you'll go to Luke chapter 15, please. Last week, we finished up chapter 14. Janelle did a great job of tackling a really, a really tough text there where Jesus was telling us to count the cost of, of following him. You know, and it struck me again that here we have Jesus in this situation where large crowds are, are beginning to follow him. And his response is not to say, finally, we made it. We did it. We got what we've been looking for. His response, as usual, is to almost push back against it, saying, hold up, hold up, wait a minute now, count the cost of what's happening here. It's almost like the polar opposite of the common ideology of churches in America. And I don't know, I just think that's something to to ponder a, a little bit. But Janelle pointed out last week that part of counting the cost of following Jesus is not just to see to it that we're as miserable as can be at various times in our lives, but counting the cost of being willing to love people like he does. And that's a challenge. That's really not easy. And that's something that spills over into the text that we're going to be reading this morning. The Pharisees are going to be like the person in my neighborhood. They're going to be complaining about Jesus and the way he's behaving and the spectacle it's creating only because they don't understand the nature of it. They don't understand the motives. They don't know God's heart for the human race and the promise that he's keeping. And that's what our text is going to be revealing today. And I'm telling you, this section is pure gospel. I love this section uh, that we're going to be reading today. I will be calm. No, I won't. I'll try to be calm. Uh, But if you're there in Luke 15, let's begin with verse 1. It says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law really happy to realize that the marginalized were coming in and Sorry, that's the hopeful translation. The the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Okay, so we'll stop there for a second. This is a very familiar, repeated pattern that we're seeing. We've seen all through the Gospels, right? Uh, And remember, tax collectors were representative of the, the worst kind of sinner in that context, not just because... You know, nobody likes paying taxes. That's no, but it was more than that. They were considered to be traitors to the nation of Israel. They collaborated with Rome or with Herod, and that made them unfaithful to their Jewish heritage and, and the laws of Moses, unfaithful, in essence, then to God in the minds of the religious leaders. And, and not saying that they were wrong about that. These guys were collaborating with Rome. They were doing things improperly. They were doing things that that put other people at risk, and it was harming people. So they weren't incorrect in their assumptions about where these people were in their lives, but there was something wrong in the way they were responding to this. So the, the tax collectors were part of a group of people. The religious leaders wrote off because they didn't adhered to the standards of purity that had been established. But there was something about Jesus that was attracting them, which I think is interesting. He wasn't repulsive to them. There was something about him that made them all come near. Uh, And that, you know, even to the point where he's eating with them, and that infuriated the religious leaders. And part of this is because in the ancient world, to share a meal together was a declaration of acceptance. 
Because to eat together, you're both eating the same things. And so the, the same things are becoming a part of each person's body. They're, you know, you're, you're, you're connecting to each other that way. And this sort of willingness to share life that way with people considered to be sinners was unthinkable in the mindset of those who were adhering to the religion at that time. But there's something really important being revealed here. It says in verse 1 that, that these sinners come to do what? If you have it there in front of you. Well, we got it up there on the screen. They're coming near to Jesus for what? To listen to Jesus. Like the, the, the opposite of what the religious leaders are doing at this time. And this gets said a lot in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the truth is that God is accepting of anyone who comes with a willingness to listen, a willingness to hear him. Not those who get their lives together first and then come to him, but those who come to listen and allow themselves to be reshaped by what it is that they hear. But the religious leaders, they weren't listening at all. They, they felt they had it figured out already. And it turned out that what they had figured out was just the limited box of their own assumptions. They simply had a religious position to defend. And the whole thing ended up being a dead end. But for those coming to listen, the possibilities are wide open. All the many ways in which God can redeem and restore and provide life for us the way he intended life to be. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is a, is a non-discriminating eater. He eats a lot in Luke's gospel. In, in, if, you know, if our image of Jesus was only from what Luke said, he weighed like 300 pounds because he's always eating indiscriminately as well. He eats with the riffraff and he eats with the respectable. Remember just last chapter, he was eating dinner at a Pharisee's house, somebody a respected leader. So it's another reminder there. Like the, it's not like we're redefining the categories. It's that God doesn't seem to care about all the boundaries we create for each other, all of the different ways in which we divide up. In fact, Jesus comes and tears down the distinctions between respectable and non-respectable. And this has always been a problem for people who are motivated by religion in and of itself because religious boundaries can only thrive when we've categorized and divided people into their proper places, when we can look at someone and sum them up with a few words, then then religion can thrive. There's the good guys, which, you know, the good guys are the persons making up the categories and those who agree with them. And then the bad guys are those who are unlike them and disagree with the categories. And it all makes it, those are the markers that establish social and religious thinking. You, you know, you can, like I said, well, he's a, a liberal. Well, she's a conservative. It's all these different ways in which we'll divide each other up. And Jesus comes along and says, yeah, you know what? Sorry, everyone is in need of God's grace. These distinctions really make no dis- difference at all. It messes up everything and it makes the boundary makers mad. It gets them upset. And listen, this is just the way it's always been. It started with Jesus. Jesus was getting people upset with him all the time because he wouldn't establish nice, respectable boundaries. And anybody who follows his path, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that you're not preaching grace like Paul preached grace until somebody's accusing you of preaching lawlessness. And that's just the reality of it. As long as we're going to preach grace the way that Jesus reveals it, it's going to make people mad. There's going to be people pushing back at that, saying this is too far. And this is the issue then that prompts the stories that we're about to read. 
The Pharisees don't understand the reason for the fireworks. They don't, it's a bunch of racket. It's, 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 it's ruining the respectability of Israel. Uh, they don't get what's motivating this. And so Jesus tells some stories to explain the motivation behind it. But somebody has to be really listening to get it. And that's the, the real issue. To get the explanation, you've got to be willing to listen to it. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. So Jesus told them a story. If a man had, has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one who is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he'll joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, as usual, Jesus tells entirely secular stories. He always does. He never tells religious stories. And here he pictures a person with a 100 sheep, which in that time and context is a lot of sheep. That's actually a person who's well off. He's actually picturing a person who could afford to lose a sheep. Yet instead of considering this an acceptable margin of loss, he leaves the other 99 we presume with somebody else to watch them because otherwise the thing doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and he goes looking for the one who wandered off. And when he finds it, he's not angry or irritated at this detour. No, he puts the sheep lovingly on his shoulders, making sure that the wanderer gets some rest in this. And he brings it back to where it belongs. And then he gets his friends together to, to celebrate the return of this one out of a hundred sheep that's been returned. Now, I'm just going to be honest. In my Western mind, uh, this is odd behavior. Uh, I mean, keeping 99 sheep in those environments safe seems like a good enough job as it is. I mean, you know, that's not just good. That's good enough. I mean, uh, you know, we lost one. Okay, let's move on. It's not that big of a deal. And who's going to want to celebrate the return of one little sheep? You know, hey, my sheep is back. Hey, I had an egg for breakfast. I guess we all got news. <laughs> But as odd as that is to me, as I think back to my time going to South Sudan, and, uh, and you guys can, can back me up on this, cattle are a huge deal in South Sudan when I was over there. You remember, there's, 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 I mean, that was like, that's life. I mean, cattle is, is everything. I was talking to one of the local pastors at one time, Albino, and he was saying to me that he, he had helped get a, a cow back to its original owner because he had spotted it in somebody else's herd. And he said, I recognized it and I was, helped, I was able to help get it back to them. And I'm out there looking at these cows and it's a sea of cows that all look exactly alike. And, and I, I actually laughed. I looked at him incredulously and I said, you recognized him? And he said, oh yeah, I knew that cow when it was a calf and I knew the markings on it and the shape of its horns and all of this. And, and I mean, it was a, a big deal. So I could see that people who knew and cared about cattle like that would probably celebrate if one cow comes home to its original owner. So this story that Jesus tells isn't without credibility. This could happen in a setting where sheep are a person's life. And we remember the context of the story. Jesus is trying to explain why he is scandalously hanging out with known sinners who've come to listen to him. This is his mission to gather up those who've wandered away from their place with God without regard for how they got there or where they came from. 
just to gather them in. And in each parable that he's going to tell in this section, the searcher behaves the same way, diligently searches and then rejoices when what is lost is found. But each story highlights a different aspect of just what was lost in the human plight after the fall. In this story, the sheep wanders away from its place in the herd. It's isolated. It's alone. We could actually say it's in exile. And this is the the mission of the gospel, the end of exile. This is the ministry of reconciliation that Paul describes, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. This is what this is all about. God wants to restore our sense of belonging. This is why Jesus was hanging out with people that were considered to be outsiders to Israel's faith and Israel's heritage. God's intent is to gather us back in to himself. God's intent is not this, it's this. This is also why setting up religious boundaries and categories of worth are so anti what it is Jesus is about, what Christ is doing. And we'll notice in both of these stories, it's not up to whatever is lost to come back on its own. They were sought after. And whether a person, you know, believes in prevenient grace or irresistible grace, the point is the same. This is God's initiative. God sets out looking, all for the purpose of reconciling, of bringing people back to where we belong. The thrust is not punishment or exclusion of those who've wandered away, but of finding and reconciling and restoring to original intent. The Pharisees were focused on the the sinfulness of those outside their religious circle, but Jesus was focused on their absence from where they were meant to be. And that's a mindset that's important to grasp a hold of. I think this poses a challenging question for us when we see people outside of our religious community engaging in things that maybe we consider to be morally questionable. Do we see them as sinners or do we see them as people who belong to God but aren't there yet? There's a big distinction in that viewpoint. Often when we look at this parable, we focus on the need for people to repent and be returned to God. And certainly that is an element and an aspect of this story. But it's not the focus of this story. No, because who is this parable told to? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. The, the call to obedience in this story is to the people who consider themselves to be God's people. And the challenge is to give up all notions of being respectable and instead be welcoming to all people just like Jesus is. That's how we're going to participate in this ministry of reconciliation that Paul calls us to. That's how we're going to follow his example of going into the wilderness to find those who are lost by being friends with anyone and inviting everyone to belong because it's in the belonging that real change can take place not the other way around. Well, Jesus tells another story, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she'll call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. All right, a very similar story, only 
Now it's about a last coin. And the silver coin, uh, the, the word used there is drachma. It's, it's uh, about a day's wages. Um, uh, scholars are not sure exactly how that would translate, but somewhere around you know, $200, $250 in, in our economy. But here's the thing. We know in, in the ancient Arabic culture, there was a practice where a bride would wear what was called a gargush. And it, it was sort of a headdress that had a, a chain with a minimum of 10 coins sewn into it. And she'd keep that headdress the whole time she was married. Not wear it the whole time, but I mean, she would keep that as like a a precious family heirloom. Uh, And so to lose one of those coins, if this is what he's talking about, well, that would be like a family crisis at at that point. Now, some argue that there's not enough evidence that the Jewish people were adopting that practice. Uh, Yemenite Jews actually do to this day. But the fact that people adjacent to Palestine were doing this uh, at the time that Jesus told this would have meant that even if it weren't a Jewish practice, they still would have been familiar with what it is that he was talking about in this. The specificity of 10 coins just seems too much of a coincidence to think that that's a random number to me anyway. So what if this story isn't just about the monetary value of the coin, but about the deeper sentimental familial connection that a person would have to that coin? Then suddenly it makes the coin much more valuable, doesn't it, at that point? You know, I remember one Thanksgiving at at our house, we uh, had a a glass, you know, a crystal uh, bowl that had been passed down to Robbie from her grandmother, and her dad happened to be there, and when we were trying to get the bowl down from the cupboard, it slipped out of hands, and it fell on the ground, and it shattered into a million pieces. And I just looked at her dad, who obviously very clearly wore the, the sadness of that, and it wasn't anything to do with a possible monetary value of the bowl. It had everything to do with his connection to the history of that thing, the connection to his own past. So we understand better why in the story, when the woman finds this coin, she throws a celebration, and the neighbors are stoked for her because this is something more than just the monetary value. And again, this goes back to the start of this section. Jesus is explaining his willingness to associate with everyone, And he's providing a motive. The people that the Pharisees rejecting were rejecting here, Jesus is telling them they've got value. They mean something to God. And again, I think we learn here that God wants to restore our sense of value. This is, you know, why, and you know, this isn't to try to turn things around and and categorize somebody else, but this is why we would never want to be in a position where we're out somewhere holding up signs describing who it is that God hates or anything along those lines, that, that, is, that would be blasphemous behavior because we have no right to devalue people whom God created and loves. In fact, when we do that, we're right back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're right back there, eating from that, making the determination of who's in and who's out, usurping God's position as judge. And both of these stories represent God as one who goes out looking for the lost, who checks every nook and cranny, sweeping everything up to find a coin, and a God who celebrates exuberantly when what was lost is found. And if this doesn't communicate the value of humanity, no matter where we find ourselves or where a person may be in in life at this time, if this doesn't express so clearly a person's value, I don't know what can. You and I 
We are valuable to God. But while that's an important lesson to learn, that's a truth to build our identities on, I am loved by God. That's who I am. Remember who this story is told to. Again, Jesus is telling the Pharisees who have devalued some people, and and Jesus is correcting that. The, The challenge is for us to set about then valuing people. If we're not to devalue them, then we are to value them like God does. <laughs> oh, great, Rob. That's way more of a challenge. This is terrible. Because, look, man, people are difficult. If you don't know that, then you're not alive. Uh, but from God's side, we're his beautiful difficulty. We're who he loves. You know, way back in 1994, sociologist Elijah Anderson warned the United States about our culture. A growing American cultural trend, he said, is that the extent to which one person can raise himself up depends on his ability to put another person down. And this was way before the rise of social media. But we've certainly seen it snowball into a cultural norm, the casual way that we'll insult others to the, to the phenomena of cancel culture All of this has the cumulative effect of devaluing our fellow human being. And it is the opposite of God's ways, the opposite of how he works. Never once, you'll notice that, never once in the Gospels will we ever see Jesus disassociate himself from someone because he doesn't like them. We never once see Jesus withdraw from another person in order to protect his own reputation or his own testimony. And of course, this this is a challenge to us. The question that poses to us is, who are we tempted to cancel? Whose value will we disregard because they look or think or behave or vote or whatever differently than we do? Can we remember... And this is the challenge. It's always the challenge. It's not just for us as 21st century Americans. This is the challenge for the human race. Can we remember what God had to overlook then and even now in drawing us to him? Can we remember the grace that first drew us to him and what that meant to us? when it comes to how we interact with or treat our fellow human being. I've told my story here a lot of times, and I hope uh, you'll indulge me and let me tell it one more time. Uh, And that's making it sound like this is the last time I'm going to tell it, and I can't make that (laughs) promise because it just doesn't seem to be true. But when I left the crazy church, and, and when I talk about the crazy church, I'm talking about I was part of, in my formative years as a Christian, part of a very legalistic, charismatic, uh, uh, hurtful church. Uh, if you've listened to the Mars Hill podcast, like multiply that by 10, and, and this is what we were involved in. And when I left that, I was exhausted. I mean, I, I, I intentionally retreated from God, and I felt so lost. I was I was done. I was toast. I had been so regulated by religious rules that I no longer had the energy to keep. And so I just gave up altogether. Now, that's not to say that I was living some massively immoral lifestyle. I wasn't cheating on my wife or doing anything. It's just that I gave up trying to make God happy. 
I just gave up trying to pursue those things that I felt like he was requiring of me. I just went to work and I sat around and I watched TV and I drank beer and I wasn't reading a Bible and I wasn't praying. I wasn't doing any of the things that I was told I had to do in order to please God. And I knew, I just knew I was failing God. I knew that, that it was being stored up and he was getting upset about all of this and that any minute now he was going to crush me for what it was that I was failing to do because I wasn't living up to his standards. And so during that time, Robbie and I, we kept looking for churches. I, that was more Robbie's impetus than mine. I was very half-hearted in that whole thing. I was limping around from church to church and, yeah, what are you going to do to me? And uh and, and each place that we'd go, you know, I'd have this same old struggle going on there. And one time we were at a church and, and the worship service like, like was really dynamic. The people around us were just really, you know, into it. And, and, and I just was like a desert on the inside. I was looking at everybody and a couple of things going on. I was kind of mad at them because, you know, how do they keep the rules so well or how are they doing this? But I was also just, you know, the fact that I was so dead inside, just reinforced that sense of condemnation. Like, I'm just really, I'm making things way worse now. Boy, if I thought I was going to get it before, I'm really going to get it. And so there was this little prayer. I had this one little anemic prayer that I would pray over and over again like a mantra. And I would just say, God, don't give up on me. Like, I'm not where I need to be. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get there. I'm exhausted. Just don't give up on me. Maybe I can get around to keeping the rules at some point. But don't give up on me till then. And so I'm in this service and that's going on in my head. And I had this experience. And and here's the thing. Look, this is my experience. So you can take it or leave it. You don't have to believe me. I'm not, there's no requirements here. You can write it off as my own, you know, twisted psyche or uh, emotional breakdown or whatever. But I believe that this happened. This was real to me. And, and it changed things for me. But in, in the midst of all of that, it was those though Jesus were suddenly in front of me. And I had the impression of arms out. And I had the impression of a smile. And I most definitely heard the words, why would I give up on you? And I sat there thinking about it, thinking I started compiling a list. Well, I, this, and there was that. And, and the words came again. Why would I give up on you? How would it possibly benefit me to give up on you? I paid a great price for you, and I love you. And that was it. That was the extent of it. But I'm telling you, in that moment, all of my paradigms were destroyed at that point. I realized God didn't want me for what I could do for him. God wanted me because he loves me. God loves me. He loves you. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. You belong with him. We've belonged with him all along. We just didn't know it. We were just lost and wandering. But he loves us and he wants us with him. We're valuable. That experience, I'm telling you, was over 30 years ago. I've never gotten over it. I I barely brushed against the abyss of his grace and love. And it reshaped me. It altered me. I've never gotten over it. Because he values me, I want to be a better human being. Because he values me, I want to value others like he does. Do I do it well? No, not not often. Do Do I always treat people with the kind of love that I've been shown? I sure don't. But it's my goal. Like that's the thing. 
That's the driving force of this journey of following Jesus. I want to be who he intended me to be. I want to be like him and love like he does. That's the heart of God's kingdom. That's the revelation of it all. Our true worth in the eyes of our creator who would go to the lengths that he went to to bring us back where we belong. Why? Because we're valuable to him. That, that's something that will change our lives if we'll grasp it. That's something that can change the world. So let's take this insight to heart. Let's allow God to begin breaking down the categories that we develop for our fellow human beings. And listen, that's just the air we breathe in this fallen world. That's just, you know, we do this because this is what everybody does. It's the norm. It's the way it goes. But that's the whole thing about the kingdom. It comes in to turn all that stuff upside down, to show us there's a better way to be human. Let's embrace this good news of belonging and let's accept that we're valued by God and then let's show that to others by valuing them. Right on? All right, very cool. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you so much for this revelation of your love. Where would we be without it? I'm constantly coming back to you with Peter's words. Where would I go? Where would I go if I left you? What am I going to find out there that has the words of eternal life like you have that can make me aware of the meaning and the purpose of this life, like what you've provided here. We thank you for this good news, Lord God. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that, that we will embrace the challenge, that, that we'll come to listen to you, which means that we'll repent. It means we'll turn away from the life we were pursuing to pursue life as you've revealed it. I pray, Father, that as we've become those people, that we continue on in this pattern of grace, ever drawing in and ever encouraging reconciliation from our fellow human being to the God who created us, who loves us and values us like you do. Father, I just pray that every person leaves here with that sense, that knowledge of your great love for us. How could we ever get over it, Lord? How could we ever get over it? Let it shake us and shape us, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.